Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. As we go through these readings, we're seeing that uh, the intensity of the week is progressing, and we come to understand a little bit better why it's called the Passion Week, and understanding what our Lord is going through. Before meditating on, on the events, just maybe want to reread the gospel from the first hour this evening, it's very short, just as a, as a framing reference through which we'll look through this. Therefore the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one takes my life away from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. I received this commandment from my Father, once again, a division arose among the Jews on account of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the sayings of someone possessed by a demon. It is not possible for a demon to open the eyes of the blind. Is it? Glory be to God forever. Amen. So tonight there is at least... three betrayals, depending on how you count them. But before we look at those, I want to maybe meditate tonight. That's the objective. But before we do that, is to understand a little bit the, the world in which um, the Lord has been incarnate in and how they think and how they, they interact and how they deal. Um, we'll do a little bit of it today and a little bit of tomorrow because it's, un it's important for us to understand the frame of mind of the characters that are that are interacting with the Lord, because 
it's easy for us to condemn. It's easy for us to think and to meditate and to come up with ideas looking through the lens of history. Hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say. But it's important for us to understand them. So this is a world of limited goods. Okay, so everything had a limited supply. So that meant that everything had big value. If you someone had more of something, it meant someone else had less of something. And so this pertained to the obvious, like food and, and money. But in this culture, it also had to do with honor and shame. And so a man had to keep his honor. And if somebody was insulted, they got less honor and someone else got more honor. And so there would be disparity going on that in the culture, the people needed to be fixed. This is going to be a very important factor both tonight, tomorrow um, in the readings. A woman, however, had no sense of honor. And I'm not taking shots. That, that was the culture. A woman's, a woman who was either shameful or shameless. And shameless was the bad one. It was good for a woman to be shameful. Consequently, the woman belonged to her house. When she'd leave her house, she had her hair covered. Her head covering was a symbol of her house, that she belonged still to her house. And so she wasn't going to shame her house by the uncovering of her hair. A woman had no meaning except in a man. So a woman's identity had to be found in a man. A woman couldn't be her own person in the social sense. Neither could a slave. This is also important for reading because our Lord is going to make reference to that concept of slavery as well. We're also in a context where we're not going to talk about the exile and post-exile. We'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow. But suffice it to say for tonight that specifically the tribe of Judah feels very proud that they knew that the prophecies said that the Messiah would come from their tribe. He'd be descendant specifically from the tribe of Judah and even more specifically a descendant of David. And this brought them great pride because, as you may or may not know, the kingdom of Israel had been divided at one point with the north and the south. Judah reigned in the south and Israel in the north. And Benjamites and other tribes um, reigned up north, but not in the south. And after the exile, it was united as one kingdom again. And it was seen as, as the, the tribe of Judah as the one that ought to reign. And so anybody from the tribe of Judah feels a special cultural thing. Um, it's like how even among the Orthodox we can show off and say, oh, but I'm from the Church of Alexandria or I'm from this church. There's this national, there's a specific pride. And this was even more important because the temple was seen as a sign of the kingdom. And, and this is something I think that's happened again in, in modern times, but well, over the over the last many centuries is that sociologically like culturally people wise like when we come together people like there to be a gathering place and we start to locate our identity through a location so the early church for example was very spread out over time it became within a century right we see that it was concentrated in the church 
right? Whereas before the church was the people of, of, of God, I'm not saying it was a mistake, I'm just saying the evolution, right? By the time of Ignatius, it's saying the church is where the bishop is, right? And the bishop presides over people. And we got focused on a building again. Well, this is what happened with the Jews. They got very focused on the building. And that's going to matter soon too. So to them, the sign of their nationhood, the sign of their unity, the sign of their existence, the sign of everything was the physical church. And so if that's threatened, there's a problem, much like what many of you might be feeling right now, is that your lack of access to the building somehow makes you feel like you're not the church. You are, we are still the church in spite of the lack of building. But this became everything for them. And the Feast of Tabernacles, for example, and I'm bringing up the Feast of Tabernacles because almost all of the readings from John in the last day and going into tomorrow, almost all of them are all from the Feast of Tabernacles, um, as well as from the chapter after the raising of Lazarus. And they keep coming back to those. And that feast, for example, where people would pitch their tents, it used to be held in the field because it was the time for harvesting. And so people would pray the feast, celebrate the feast, conduct the feast, actually not in the building, but in, in their tents. And over time, as they got more centralized, everything moved to the building. And so it almost became a labor, even though they were excited, where you now had to go to Jerusalem. You now had to go there to celebrate the feast, um, as opposed to being more family-oriented as it was originally. Why does that matter a little bit? Because all of the readings today, and the last day actually, the Lord is staying away from Jerusalem. He doesn't spend a single night there. Actually, if you look carefully at the way that it was worded in the Gospel of Mark on Palm Sunday evening, the eve of Monday, I mean, it says that the Lord literally walked into the temple, took a look around, and walked away. Like, like he is looking and just like, I can't, I can't look at this. This isn't my house. And he leaves. He comes back the next day and, and casts everything out and leaves again. And then he doesn't come back to the temple. In the Gospel of John, we see that he's mostly in Bethany within walking distance of the city. And in another Gospel, we see that he spends at least one night in another close by town. And we see from the readings that God is clearly very disgusted at the state of the church, the, the gathering, the assembly, the people of God, the temple. It's important for us to understand that now as we get into these, these, these characters that we'll look at. I would like to suggest, it's just a personal suggestion, that the betrayal actually started earlier than this. The betrayal started in John 5 with the paralytic man that we read the gospel of a couple of weeks ago. The Lord, sorry, I have problems with the paralytic. The Lord had healed on the Sabbath and it raised a riot because the Lord was breaking the law. Note again, he was breaking the human law concerning the Sabbath, not the divine law concerning the Sabbath. And at first the Jews didn't know who healed him. But the healed paralytic went back to them explicitly to tell them who it was. His betrayal is, I think, his personal opinion, maybe a lesser one than the rest. 
because it seems like there was a little bit of an abuse of, of power here. He had maybe a weak personality, but there was something to his betrayal. The man betrayed Jesus because they asked him who it was originally. He didn't know. He got a sense that they wanted the information. So he gave it to them. He went back. Once he found out who it was, he went back and gave it to them. So on some level, I would say he's guilty of being a people pleaser. He wants to be close to authority. This is very dangerous. I've seen or heard egregious things that people in authority have had their faithful devotees do. And the people comply because they think they're doing something good. We have to be very, very careful not to do this. I've seen people bring information that they think that I want to know, even if I don't. And sometimes it's because I've asked something that might have suggested that I did want to know. We all have to be seeking the truth. That man, paralytic, he wanted to be loved by the ones that he felt could help him. His betrayal came, you might say, from a sense of being vulnerable. His whole life, he was at the mercy of others, and that conditioned him to some extent to want validation from the people who he thought mattered. His new life meant that he wanted to be, this is why I was talking about the importance of the temple, he wanted to be in the social system of the people, the temple. Right? To him, it's like really after after 38 years of not being able to participate, am I going to not be allowed to participate now because the guy who healed me is some guy that the leaders don't like? So I can, I can feel for him. So he was actually ready to give the church whatever he wanted. We are so averse to the truth. Be careful not to want to please anyone but God. Be careful not to want anything but truth. Servants, don't try and know things. Don't try and know stuff about the people you serve. Don't try and find out about church politics. Don't try and take a side when you're not asked or when it's not your responsibility to be a judge. This man's, I think, was the first betrayal because he set off the cascade that would then follow. Because then what then followed is John 7 through 10. And I'm going to go through it, not going to read all of it, but I'm going to go through it because it is specifically that context that the readings are taken from today of that encounter where this is all happening. The Feast of the Tabernacles that we had just made mention of. After the Lord healed the paralytic, the people were following him. The Pharisees were following him. They, they had it in for him from that point on. They're following him. They're asking what he's talking about. So Jesus confronts them. In John 7 through 10, you see that Jesus, it seems like Jesus out of nowhere, if you're paying attention, suddenly confronts them and says, what's your problem? Why do you, what is it that you want to accuse me of? What's your problem? And then the people say, this, this guy is demon-possessed. No one's accused you of any, anything. But they were. And he turns at them and says, yes, you are. You are. You are mad because of one incident that I did on the Sabbath. And what could that only be referring to in, in the Gospel of John? Only the paralytic. 
right? Because he hasn't healed the man born blind yet. And to break that law, I think this maybe is what some of us don't appreciate. That's a capital offense, right? The Lord healing on the Sabbath is a capital offense. And so they're following him because they're like, no, we, we need to figure this guy out because we would really like to take him to task. And so the Lord is saying, you want to take me to court for breaking the law? What law? You guys don't get it. Okay, you guys, you guys made rules about rest. Based on how, sorry to get philosophical here, on how you understand space and time. So for you, space and time means if there's a time off, then you're time off and you just sit there and you do these things. That's not how it works for me. My father works hitherto as do I. I and my father are one. He's like, I am telling you that that's not how God works. God still works. And here, you want a better accusation? Forget the Sabbath. I and my father are one. Your temple rules and traditions, they're making you miss the point. You become obsessed about how it's done to the point that you just don't get it. Your meanings are completely incomplete. The light shines on the Sabbath. The sun of righteous still shines on the Sabbath. The sun does not cease to give light just because of what day of the week there is. There is divine work at play in your rest. And then it says they want to arrest them. And they have this back and forth with him saying, who are you? Who? Beginning they say, you, you, no, no, we know who your father is. Are you crazy? And he says, no, I'm not crazy. But before Abraham was, I am. We read all of these throughout the week. And then they look at him and they say, are you, are, are you crazy? You're not even 40 years old. How do you think you've seen Abraham? And, and, and the Lord says, with just as much conviction, well, before Abraham, your father Abraham, he rejoiced to see my day and was glad. He saw it. But I want to tell you something before Abraham was, I am. The name of God. And so then as he starts to make the claims in this discourse between them, John 7 through 10, they are no longer asking, what do you mean by who your father is? They know who it is, and that's why they want to arrest him. That's why they want to stone him. But he takes it further. He insults them because he's standing there looking at their feast. And the Feast of Tabernacles is a feast of great joy. It's one of the most joyous feasts of the whole year for the Jews, arguably the most joyful. It was party time for the Jews. And they had a crazy, cool customs where they would bring torches of light at night where they would take the clothing of the high priest and they would use them as not just the high priest of the priests and they'd use them as torches and they'd walk around and they would give they would give light through this and then as the sun was rising they would give their back to the sun and say our fathers worship the sun and we don't have this error and so we have turned our backs on that false worship they would have um water of purification brought and it was the feast of joy and the lord was looking at them and saying wow it's all fake because you as he says in the 11th hour prophecy is that they thought their strength was in their descending from abraham in their traditions and their law. And the Lord looks at them and says, that's not real light. I am is the true light. 
that's not true joy. True joy is when Abraham saw me. I am the source of real joy. Your water does nothing. I am the living water. Just like he had said to the Samaritan woman, he said also to them. And then they ask him, who does he think he is? And then he responds with what we read last night, where he says, you'll find out who I am when I'm lifted up. And that's why that gospel we used was the framing gospel saying, is he possessed? Is he crazy? Because they knew that there was a real claim being made. He was claiming to be God. He says, where I'm going, you can't follow. I'm doing my father's work. And then they say, what do you mean? Are you crazy? Do you have a devil? That's where that comes in. And the Lord says, okay, you know what? You want to have your trial? Let's have your trial. Let's have your trial. So the law says, because they say to him, you're not a witness. You're one person. And the law says you need at least two people to be witness. And so Christ says, okay, then I will call on my first witness. My first witness is God, my father. He is upping the ante like there's no tomorrow. He's completely fearless before them because many people think that he was, he was weak. He's not weak. He's up the ante. He's like, okay, first witness, my dad, God, who you claim is your father. That's my father. That's my first witness. Do you want my other witnesses? Because I've got more than one. My other witness is John the Baptist. You killed him. Was John speaking the truth and not speaking the truth? Take a stance. Because they were dancing around it because they didn't want to take a stance because they feared the people, as it said. Okay, you don't have John? Okay. All right, Moses and the, and the prophets, they wrote about me. That's my third witness. If you hate all those witnesses, I'll give you a fourth. How about the works that I do? I heal, I raise the dead, I do all these things. Which of these is it that you think you can hold against me? Because all of these actually testify against you. These say you're ignorant. These witnesses say, you're a liar. And he concludes by casting them as guilty. And because they don't know how to answer him, they've been shamed culturally in front of everyone. Their dignity is gone. And these are the teachers of the law. These are the priests. These are the lawyers. And so they are beside themselves in rage. Because they are now completely annihilated. And envy begins to set in. All they can say to him, the only response they could work up was, you're a blasphemer. And they're either right or wrong. He's either a blasphemer or he's speaking the truth. They're afraid to deal with that it might be the truth. They don't recognize God. And they get sarcastic with him because they... Just, I want you to hear their voices, understand, like, we're not born of fornication, okay? We have one father, even God, right? Who do you think we are, right? They're, they're challenging back. And God says to them, well, if God were your father, you would love me. Because I come from God. And then they say, actually, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. This is, this is what God says to them. This is the truth about you. Because the devil is a liar. He was a murderer from the beginning. And they were about to commit many murders. But he wasn't even meeting it just in that sense. But I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. That's what our Lord said. I'm God. Take it or leave it. But that's who I am. He says, you're guilty. The court of the Jews say, 
Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And that's why the number of betrayals today depends on whether you count the Pharisees and priests as a betrayal, and I think that it should. Because theoretically, they were supposed to be working for God. So we know that some believed. We saw that in the gospel the sixth hour this evening. Some believed, and they were afraid. That's why there's a bit of a betrayal here. They were petrified of, of, of the system, right? Where it's, it's that servant or priest or bishop or whoever that knows there's an opinion that they think is right, but it's kind of culturally taboo. And so they hold back, right? Because they don't want to be the one who stirs the pot. They don't want to be the one who, who comes out and says it. And they saw themselves, the Jews in general, especially the leaders, as guardians of the truth against the foul Gentiles and the lawbreakers. But the Lord had come into their temple, again, their, their central point, the point of glory, their, their white house, their house of commons, their Abbasaya cathedral in Cairo. The Lord walks in there and says, get out of here. You've completely defiled this house. And so they're exceptionally affronted by this, right? This has now only just been a matter of, 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 of a week, right? Not even a week since this event. And so they're having a sense of who does this guy think he is? And they're trying to find something obviously wrong with him to hold against him. And I'm using obviously wrong to say they're uniting with each other trying to say he's wrong, right? Obviously he's wrong, right? But they don't know yet what to claim. What do they say? What, how can we call him obviously wrong? What are we going to use for trial? Because we get it. We know he's obviously wrong, but we need, we need dirt on him, official dirt to use because this is going to be a big trial and the people are going to go nuts because the people like him. They were screaming Hosanna to him on Sunday. The only things they could find were he said the temple would be destroyed and he'd raise it up. And then finally they would actually get him on something else. We'll talk about that tomorrow. They want to silence him, and they see nothing but their shame needing to be fixed. Limited goods. Their honor is down here. His honor is up here. They need to turn that around. They want that fixed. But we see that they recognize something good about him that they had to deal with. They acknowledge that he was doing wonders. But instead of questioning the good, what do I make of the fact that he's doing this? They decided he should be silenced. They decided it was obvious that he was guilty, but nobody articulated what it was precisely of what he was guilty at. So they tried to operate in the name of justice, in the name of caring for the people. So typical, right? How many of us will start fights in the service or engage in fights in the service? And by service, I don't just mean church service, any kind of service, your home, your work, anywhere while pretending that it was because your heart was for the people, right? That you were, you were trying to, to take care of the people. Where, where we say these things like, oh, it's, it's not about me. Really, it's not about me. I, I can disappear. I can die. Uh, you can kick me out. You can strip me of this. It's about the people. When really in our heart, it's not about the people. It's about our ego. It's about our prestige. It's about our honor. It's about our opinions. At least for me. Jealousy is a horrible killer. And I confess my own guilt in this. I remember one time someone moving to our city that I grew up in 
and I was the youth guy. And this guy came in and all the youth loved him. And I was eaten up inside with jealousy. Will they not like me anymore? Are they going to only chill with that person now? Should I befriend that person so that I don't lose them? Should I defame him? I'm, I'm guilty. I'm not just pointing fingers at people. I'm filthy sinner. Jealousy is a horrible, horrible killer. Some people take it upon themselves to be disagreeable with the leader of the service, the steward of the service, the new priest, right? People will take it upon themselves to make sure that the new guy knows his place because I know what's really going on here. And believe me, it's not about me. It's for the service. So classical. Sometimes there's a new guy at work or a subordinate and you find a way to ridicule the person or to belittle the person so that your position is more secure. You're afraid of someone showing up that will outshine you. The better player on the team, some guy at work that actually is better than you at certain skills. And so you get creative with ways of keeping what you think is your power. And then when you notice the good, I'm just trying to explain how we do exactly what the Pharisees and priests do. To account for the good that someone does, right? like you, you got to admit, okay, well, he's good at his job, but you need to find a, a way to make his good not good because it's undeniable. You'll give it a wrong motivation. It's the devil. It's a lie. It's fake. It's a show. It's a pretense. It's ambition. It's a deception, right? That's, that's how we fix the logical issue that comes up in our brain of I don't like him he's obviously bad but he does this good thing how can I explain this good thing aha it's wrong it's a wrongly motivated good thing and therefore not a good thing there's a negative and a positive ends up negative where we win the argument you do this to assuage your conscience which might be trying to tell you that you're convicting and sentencing an innocent person to death that was the betrayal of the Pharisees and the priests in today's readings. And then we have Judas and the apostles. Matthew says it's the apostles. The other, the other readings say that it was Judas. And I, I can't help but wonder if Matthew is, is saying that because they felt guilty, right? That maybe Judas was the one who said certain things out loud, but the apostles were thinking it as well. And we really need to understand Judas because I think people, I mean, Judas is messed up, as am I, but I don't think we often understand what was going on for Judas. We talked about the importance of the tribe of Judah and what they felt about the kingdom and how they were the ones that were the inheritors of the kingdom. The Messiah was going to be theirs. To be named Judah, Judas or Judah, Judas was a variant of the name Judah, just like Miriam is a variant of Mary. Judas is named after the tribe of Judah. The kingdom belongs to his tribe and his eyes. This is a really big deal. And for Judas, he's looking at the situation and he's seeing that our Lord is making these claims like, I'm going to destroy the temple. 
And in his mind, it's like, okay, why? You're supposed to be king over the temple. But then the Lord also said, but I'll rebuild it in three days. So he's like, oh, okay, then maybe we're okay. But there's an edge to him, right? There's something going on. Now, Judas is someone on the inside, okay? He's been following the Lord for the whole duration of his ministry. And he sees, he sees that there's good in the Lord. He saw miracles, he saw the feedings of the multitudes, he saw the dead raised, he saw all this. But to him, it seems this could be the power of God. He sees that. And it seemed right to him that this man, the Lord, could be the new king of Jerusalem. He's a descendant of Judah and David. So he sees that Jesus fits multiple checkboxes. So on some level, he's, he's comfortable and ambitious. But what has driven him to sell out the Lord? So we're told that he's greedy and had the money bag. That's true. I just don't think it's true, I think, in the way that we might think of it just in a glance reading. There's something else going on. Matthew and Mark tell us that the Lord's betrayal happens right after the incident with the woman washing the feet. Why? Because the Lord was scandalous. The events that we read today and we all think is so cute of Jesus and so loving and kind and the stories that we tell people like, oh, look how nice that he was. He was scandalous. First of all, a woman should not be out in public. She shouldn't have her hair pulled out. We're going to get more of the details of that when we deal with, with this woman. But by no means, by no means should she be touching a man in the way that she must. By no means should she have kissed his feet and touched him there. If she was going to touch, it should have been an anointing of the head without touch, and she should walk away immediately when it's done. So imagine if you were at someone's house as a guest and you're a respectable person and a woman shows up uninvited who you know is a woman who is a fornicator and adulterer, as we are told in the gospel, and goes right up to you and starts snuggling up against you. Let's add to it that, this, that not only is it culturally totally inappropriate but you and everyone in the room know who this woman is and that you know that you are not supposed to be indulging this. It's beyond inappropriate. It's not like a little child who is innocent and jumps up to you to put your hand around and get, no, no, this is a grown woman. And everyone, including the woman, knows that it's inappropriate. The host and the guest, actually, if you can understand that, for the time that they're living in, on some level, actually reacted decently. I mean, they were wrong to judge the Lord, but they could have kicked her out. They could have yelled at her. Instead, though, they internally judged the Lord. Not much better, but okay. But what are they saying in their head? Like, okay, this guy, no, 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 no. He can't be the real deal. There's no way he's a prophet. Because if he's a prophet, he should know how messed up this is right now. He knows who and what kind of woman this is. So if he's letting this be, he must not know. Therefore, he is not a prophet. So Judas protests this aloud and says, what are you doing? 
That's what Judas is really saying. And he says it's because he's concerned about the money going to the poor. There's merit to, 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 to that, okay? But I highly doubt that was the only thing, right? They're like, okay, great. We're with this guy, and this guy is crossing all boundaries, right? Use that scenario we just talked about, and you're the friends of, of, of the person behaving inappropriately coming in, where you just kind of put your head down and be like, yeah, we weren't expecting that one. Uh, the president gave a speech without someone writing it for him. We're really sorry about that. Let's get him off the air. That's, that's, what, that's what the 12 seem to be thinking right now. Definitely Judas is. Then the Lord adds scandal to scandal. He praises her. He says, this woman who's crossing every cultural boundary that's touching me inappropriately, she's awesome. He praises her and commands that wherever the gospel is preached, that she's remembered, that this is her memorial. This, by the way, is why we say, as this, O Lord, is the command of your only begotten Son that we commemorate. It's taken from this. Because the Lord said, wherever you proclaim this, make a memorial for her. This is total madness. Culturally, he is just completely, like, fell in the deep end. And that is why Judas walks out that door and straight to the Jews. He feels that he's being duped. This can't be the guy. I've had enough. I thought he might be the Messiah, but he wants to destroy the temple. I thought he was moral. Clearly he's not. I'm following a fraud. That's where he's seeing this going. And that's where the money comes in. Okay? He sold the Lord partially for his conscience, right? Thinking that this is fake. But the adding insult to injury is that the 30 pieces of silver, it's peanuts, financially. It was a price of the slave, as you know, from the Old Testament. But it was nothing. Monetary-wise, it was nothing. Which shows that Judas wasn't doing it just for the money. Because what he took was so little financially. He didn't even bargain. And that's what makes what he did so much more shameful. Where it wasn't even like he got a good price. He could have bargained. He could be like, no, do you, do you not know who this is? Everybody wants him. I'm an insider. No, for pennies. For pennies, he sold out his friend. And that's why the Psalms today are saying his words were softer than oil, but they were daggers because they were the words of a friend. So part of it might have been ego so that he could say he realized it and reported it. I figured out that this guy was a fraud so that when he went home leaving his master, he wouldn't look like a failure. John's gospel shows it more of it being greed. In any event, he sold out his teacher and that's a big deal. He betrayed a friend and he sold out his apostleship. He was a bishop. He sold his bishopric. How often are we guilty of this? How many opportunities have we missed 
of being with the Lord for our negative opportunism, greed, and offense? How many people have we avoided talking to or reading because we heard they were bad? There is an author that I refuse to read for the longest time because of the politics around him. And I use cliche one-liners for why he's bad and his writings were bad and etc. When they were actually very deep. There are sanely people that I have refused to visit because I was told they were frauds or liars. I missed out. I'm not saying no discernment, but I'm saying on, a, on a such a basic level, we do it to human beings. But lest we think we're not as depraved as Judas, how often have we sold out the Lord for something more trivial? Judas had a principle in mind. Judas thought the Lord was lying. But how often do we sell out the Lord for not even a principle? How often are we willing to compromise our apostleship? We are apostles, we're sent for how we look or for what we gain or for what we thought we were going to gain and didn't. Moses disbelieved God in the readings this morning. He disobeyed because of his own mood. God told him, speak to the rock, tell it to bring out water. And it's clear from the way that it's written, because God gets upset because Moses strikes it. And people are like, why is he mad that he strikes it? But there's a, a verse that, that shows you what the reason is, because we don't get to see the whole story through the writings. It said because of Moses' disbelief. It seems, don't know, it seems that Moses thought, no, this is too much as well. There's no way that my talking to a rock is going to make water come out of it. But I have this magical stick that the Lord gave me. I'm going to use the stick. And because of it, he lost his inheritance like Judas. He did not get to enter into the promised land. The people sold out God before Moses had gotten down the mountain and he hadn't even delivered the law yet. And they were already under the direction of their leaders. Aaron, the brother of Moses, worshipping another god. The Israelites complained about God in spite of their deliverance. Will we starve here? Will we go thirsty? This water is gross. And then when God literally sent them food from heaven, they said, we're so sick of your food. Look how often there's a discussion about whether or not to open your mouth about your faith. Think about how many times you've been in a discussion of, so when should I talk about God and when shouldn't I talk about God? I'm not saying that's a stupid question, but what I'm trying to say is, look at how often that's a question for you. That it's a question is a sign about our faith, what conviction we do or don't have about it. Look at the number of wrong things people are willing to do in the name of business that are against the gospel, that are against apostleship, with the, with the answer of, well, this is unfortunately how the world goes. You're selling out your apostleship. Look at how many times we say, and for, I would say, way less than what Judas did. Look at how many times we say, if God were who he says he is, he wouldn't have behaved himself this way. Therefore, I will not only do whatever I want, I'll go blaspheme God's name. You know, apostates 
are often the most viciously, the most vicious in their speaking against God. Apostates of anything. That's why people rejoice so much in converts, not taking any shots at converts. But everyone likes to parade the convert. Come here, convert. Tell us about how bad whatever your previous view that you apostatized from is. Tell me how bad atheists are. Tell me how bad Christians are. Tell me how bad Hinduism is. Tell me how bad Protestants are. Tell me how bad Eastern Orthodox are. Tell me how bad Oriental Orthodox are. We love to parade the convert. But we do this. If your disposition is, as St. Paul instructs, always instead of that, to look for what's good and true, you and I would be wiser in our conduct. As the advice of Isaiah was in the 11th hour this morning, learn to listen, you who are in difficult straits. Finally, we come to the woman, Mary. We don't know if there is one event that's happened or two. Origin says there's two. Some people think they're one. What we know about this day is that it's that this feast is that it's a celebration of Lazarus. That's why Lazarus is there, and apparently with his sisters. And that's why John says it's at Lazarus' house. Others say it's at Simon's. There's some speculation that Simon and Lazarus are the same person, that Lazarus' name might be Simon Eleazar, who was a leper. Um, Clearly, whoever this leper is is not a leper anymore, or they wouldn't be at his house because it was illegal. But if it's at Simon's house, it seems that maybe Simon's house was big enough to accommodate. And when there's a feast, so at a table... When you're having a normal dinner, the the custom was to sit down. At a feast, however, the custom was to recline. And actually, the readings say they were reclining themselves. And in the Last Supper, because it's a feast, they're reclining themselves. This is why you might have wondered, how is John leaning against the Lord's chest? Because it seems like a really awkward position to have if you're sitting at a table to just crunch up like that. It's because they're lying down. The reclining, right? You might have seen it in Eastern, Middle Eastern culture. We walk engage. They're more, they're they're more physical in their in their contact. But people are laying down, okay. And this is a laying down of men among men. Women are not to be in there. The women, if they are to come in, will have their heads covered. They are there to serve the men, give them whatever it is that they're going to give them, and they are immediately to leave. And so we are going to look at this scandal that happened. Judas has been rebuked publicly over a scandalous woman. That's got to hurt his ego, okay? But in comes this woman with an alabaster jar. An alabaster jar is what they were, is that you've got this, this, this narrowish type of pot and the top has alabaster fused onto it. And when you break that seal, it's done. You have to use all of it at once. So it's not, so this, this, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the, the oil that, that was in it. 
No. Um, I can't remember. Nard. Yes, Spike Nard. Sorry. I was thinking about the Nard that's in it. That's imported from India. Okay. This is extremely expensive. It's not what you're going to put over your host. As Abuna talked about this morning, the scripture says this was a year's salary worth that sent on it. It's 200 denarii. 200 denarii makes it seem because if this belonged to the woman, this must have been some kind of heirloom. This kind of thing was a status symbol. This is like you having that aged wine that's 150 years old that you're not going to use unless it's a crazy occasion because it's status. And so it seems like this was an heirloom to her family because it's not likely that she as a woman would have worked to be able to have gotten that. And she's coming in with eyes on one person only. She's taking this this ointment, that 200 denarii, just so that you have an understanding of the money's value at the time, 200 denarii could have fed 5,000 people. So the apostles and, and Judas are rightly worked up of saying, what is this? Not only are you scandalous, but look at that. And this woman comes in with eyes only on her Lord. She's so broken. She was so broken that she was able to be sincere and looking for the truth. We're told she was a prostitute. And unlike everyone in the room, she didn't give in to her thoughts. She didn't think she knew. She didn't think she understood. She didn't think she knew what was going on. She didn't see the answers in herself. Unlike everyone in the room, including the apostles, she gets it. She sees spirit and truth in one person. She's been affected by the Lord's doing. And because she's used to being seen as bad or inferior or disgusting, this woman, who has no meaning, she's been liberated. She's been liberated by Christ by receiving dignity from him. She becomes her beloved's. And consequently, she is completely disinterested in the spectator's view of her. We are told in Proverbs, seek the truth to the death, and truth will fight for you. We read that yesterday. This is what's happening live in the story. She ran for truth. She didn't care what people said. She ran for truth, and who went to bat for her? the truth. She doesn't utter a word in this story. And the Lord stands up to his own apostles. The Lord stands up to the Pharisees. The Lord stands up to everyone in that house, knowing who and what kind of manner of woman this was. Only he also really knew who and what kind of manner of woman this was. And this woman who's been silenced by her shame, this woman who has been ridiculed 
and excommunicated. The Lord says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Leave her alone. She has done a great work for me. Not only has she done a great work, she's doing a greater work than you even understand right now because I'm telling you what she is doing is a preparation for my burial. Why is that a big deal? Because as we see in the Synoptic Gospels, this event is happening as the lambs that are meant to be offered for the sacrificial sacrifice, the Passover itself, they were being prepared. At the very moment in which this woman is anointing him, that the Lord and the grand economy of salvation in his saving plan, when he looked from before time and said, how will I enter into time? What will I do? Included this woman, the outcast of society, to partake in the most momentous event in the history of the cosmos. That's what he did with a prostitute. She's entering the kingdom before priests and before apostles. Betrayal was not an option for her because she cared too much about the truth. Because she has been open about her reality, she wasn't lying about or to herself. God could heal her and not only heal her, but she wasn't afraid of anyone's accusations. She had become free in Christ. The rest were all captive to their egos without exception. This woman becomes a type of Christ for what he will do the next day. Because the Lord says, I'm no longer calling you slaves. And instead he becomes slave and washes their feet. Well, this night she took the place of slave and washed the feet of Christ. And Christ has emptied himself as slave and will wash the feet of the apostles. The anointing of his feet was the anointing, the preparation for his death. In the same way that the anointing of the feet of the apostles would be also a call to their death. See, the ones who get it, the ones who get him, will see that he's come that they may have life. And the only way to life was death in this world and to this world to the materials of it. Judas loved money, the symbol of everything wrong with the world. The apostles and others cared about the perception of the people, the promises of the kingdom, consistency with social norms. The leaders cared about honor, prestige, power. But the Lord was saying, if you want to live, really live, you have to die. Die with me. I will die that you may have life. And if you want to live, you must enter into that death of all of those things. Die to yourselves, die to flesh, so that you can have a body. Die for others, not to take from others. 
Cast off from yourself mortality by killing your mortality. All that you have is false. It's material. It corrupts. It decays. It dies. Come back to paradise where you are intended to be incorruptible and immortal. You can't go back on your own. So I am here to reconcile you. I am here to fix things. I am here to give you access again to what's real. You betray me because you've gotten so used to disease that you think that the disease is health. I will lay me down and I will sleep, but I will arise. I will take your corruption and disease into my own flesh and I will slay it so that you have life abundantly. And that is why he says that I, even I, when I am raised, I will draw all men to me. I will give my flesh for you to sup from. I will establish tomorrow the mystery of Eucharist because I am determined and my speaking is my doing. And I proclaim and I have spoken and so it will be that I am and will be your life. And you will look up at me when I am lifted up and you will live for I am faithful to you for eternity. That is the Lord our God, to whom is glory, honor and worship, now and always, and to the age of all ages. Amen. Christ our Savior, has come and has borne suffering that through his passion he may save us. Let us glorify him and exalt his name for he has had mercy on us. According to his great mercy.